Welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. This week I'll be reviewing 1989's film adaptation of Stephen King's 1983 novel, Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert, starring Dale Midkiff. Um, so this is a movie that I... It's not like the I just watched um, the the film adaptation of Christine last week, and I hadn't seen Christine since I first saw it when I was like thirteen years old. Pet Cemetery, however, is a movie that I've seen countless times. I remember seeing it. Must have been not not that much later when when it came out in the theaters. Um, probably when it first hit VHS, I saw it. And I've seen it just over and over and over again. So it, it really wasn't uh, the the experience of watching it to me was just was just watching a movie that I am I'm very familiar with, and it's certainly a movie that has its hold in the in the world of of horror movies. Fred Gwynn's portrayal of Judd is is legendary, um, you know, and and some of his lines are are just classic horror movie lines of course you know the ones that i'm talking about the the most famous being that sometimes dead is better um i mean there are some issues that i have with the movie and i don't think that it ever could be it's not ever as as good as it could be but there's certainly some effective scenes throughout there's some the acting is all over the place. Just choose an actor, compare it against the other actor in the movie. The, some of the actors are going to be a lot better, a lot worse than, than some of their counterparts. Um, and I know that there, there, there's been talks of remaking it, which, you know, when I first heard it, I thought it was unnecessary. But you know what? I, I'd like to see what someone else can do with Pet Cemetery, um, especially in, in this day and age. You know, our filmmaking sensibilities have changed somewhat. I think that some of just the, the shots and blocking of, of this particular movie is, I don't know, not, um, not, not inventive. There are some inventive shots, but a lot of it is it just, it, I just, I, some, sometimes some of the, the impact is lessened and I would like to see what, you know, what, what we could do with, uh, with a movie today. So I'm just going to jump right into it. And, uh, and away we go. So, I mean, right away, I, I think it's a very effective opening. The sounds of nature emerge from a black screen before revealing the pet cemetery itself. It's run down. It's overgrown. We hear the ghostly echoes of the children's goodbye to their pets. Devoid of, <laughs> devoid of any emotion, the effect falls flat. And I wish that Mary Lambert, the director, had left it out. So, I mean, this is an example of what I would like to see done differently if there was a remake. I don't think that we need the, the children's voices reading their, their, um, their, their, their final goodbyes to their pets. I mean, the, the music alone works, uh, and, and the, it, it's reminiscent of, of other horror movies. I want to say Amityville Horror, but I'm not sure. But it, it, definitely, it definitely is making me think of 
of at least one other horror movie. And there, there's definitely... Not shout-outs, but... I don't even know if they're homages. I, I don't know if they are meant to be tributes. But the, there are touches of other horror movies within this movie that, that I'll get to later. So the grave markers are, are put together by scrap and leftover wood. The camera closes in on a number of the grave sites and epitaphs to really hammer home where we are and what this is. In the novel, we aren't introduced to the pet cemetery until later in the narrative, but by placing it in the beginning, it helps set the tone of what will come. By introducing us with the place of death, a children's place of death, it creates a dark and foreboding undertone, especially when we meet the creeds and their young children. Viewers just don't want to associate children with death, and the introduction to the pet cemetery does just that. The camera pans under the opening of the cemetery to the stack of wood that serves as the barrier to the Micmac burial ground. A second later, we hear a loud roaring that we immediately assume is an animal before the camera cuts to a truck rolling down the road. It's a good choice, making the connection between this place and the truck speeding down the road. As for the barrier itself in the book, I pictured it to be a wall. A giant, giant wall of wood. You know, just made of of, of just trees that, that were put together to, to block the, the, the entrance to the, the McMack burial ground. But here it just looks like discarded underbrush. I mean, to me, in my mind's eye, in the book, it was intimidating. Here it just looks like someone needs to do some cleanup. And we meet the Creeds as they move into their new idyllic house. And for me, it's just, it's just it's way too precious. You know, the, the, the music swells with Rachel's pronouncement of the, of the house being gorgeous. It's, and I'm not sure if it's just this was of the time, I don't recall. Or if it's just a little bit too much, a little bit too on the nose, a little bit too earnest when it doesn't have to be. And this is this another reason why I would like to see what someone else could do. In, um, in 2014. But look, with that said, I have to give a lot of credit to the cinematographer here. Because the, the colors just pop. You know, the, the grass is so green, the, the sky is so blue, the clouds are so white. It, it's, at times, a gorgeous movie to look at. At other times, it's a horrific movie to look at for all of the right reasons. Look, when we're introduced to Gage, and, and Gage's end is teased much, much earlier as he starts to wander off into the road. And he's rescued by Herman Munster himself, Judd Crandall. It's a good choice to, to, to introduce Judd this way, because in the movie, Stephen King can't tell us about the dangers of the road. As an auto-visual medium, Mary Lambert has to show us. Juxtaposing little Gage against the giant speeding trucks reinforce the danger of, um, of the road and, and, and how fragile Gage really is. Judd's rescue of Gage introduces him as an active and, and heroic character, which may be one of the reasons why Fred Gwynn's performance is so beloved. You know, I, 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 like I said, I can understand if they would want to do a remake. Um, but with that said, Gwynn's Northeastern drawl is synonymous with the movie and holds the distinction of having given one of horror's most iconic lines that, like I said earlier, sometimes dead is better. So whoever follows in his footsteps has pretty mighty big shoes to fill. So... I, uh, I, I was, I was kind of getting a, a bad feeling for a little bit, because if you've listened to my Firestarter movie review, I, I couldn't handle the amounts of exposition and just 
proclamations of how people were feeling in any given moment. And we were starting to get that a little bit in the beginning. Um, but, you know, I took some notes on it, and, and thankfully it just it died out in of itself. It's just Stephen King, who, by the way, wrote this screenplay, and it's the first screenplay that he wrote for, from one of his works. Um, in fact, by this point, it's 1989. He has, he's got a lot of clout, and he used his clout while making this movie, um, you know, making sure that, you know, the, the script was pretty much adhered to. He wanted it filmed in certain locations. So he, he, um, he, he definitely isn't some pushover writer. He's, he's a force to be reckoned with. And what, I, by, by saying that, I, I don't mean that he was some blowhard making demands. He just, you know, he, he, can, he can make requests. He, he can do these things because at this point he is, he is Stephen King. So right away, when introducing Judd, uh, Judd starts teasing the origins of the path, right? And and as if we if we didn't get enough sense that something's wrong with the path, the creepy music starts playing. And as soon as Lewis walks the edge of the path, we get cat scare number one. It will not be the last. And cat scares, just cats jumping out of nowhere to scare the main character, and thusly the audience is probably it's by this point it is a. Um, you know, ridiculed and satired effect, but it is on display and it is genuine in this in this movie. I don't think it's necessarily effective. I can't help but view it through a 2014 perspective, and so it, it doesn't really affect me. Um, but it's it's the first of many cat scares. The truck reminds us of the danger, and Lewis crosses the road to get to know his neighbor, uh, Fred Gwynn. Choose the scenery while filling us on the origin of the path and why Lewis should get church fixed. And by this point, um, like I said, I, I, I was starting to worry that the, the dialogue was going to start to wander into Firestarter territory, Firestarter the movie. Um, I mean, literally, the dialogue at one point was, My daughter has a cat. His name is Winston Churchill. We call him Church for short. That got me worried. It got me like really, really worried. And then we meet Missy, um, someone who was even more small-town Maine than Judd himself. Good time Missy, the original Debbie Downer. Uh, she takes the place of Mrs. Crandall um, as a sickly, stubborn Mainer. So, I mean, she ultimately takes her life, which provides Ellie's first confrontation with death. Uh, the suicide gives the story the darker turn it needs, and it cuts out the scenes with Norma Crandall, which don't add up much to the story itself. Um... I think the inclusion of Norma would have made Judd maybe a little bit less creepy and manic as he's played all wild-eyed and, and portentous by, by Fred Gwynn. In the novel, Judd isn't nearly as animated, and if Norma had been in the movie, I think she would have helped alleviate that. With that said, I understand the choice to remove her character. In the context, it isn't the character that's important, but the character's function in the story itself. The death of the character was what mattered to the overall story. And here it's the death of Missy. Different character, different death, but same effect. Plus in the movie, we get a Stephen King cameo as the minister. Um, and uh, we, we learn that Rachel isn't at the funeral because, you know, her, her fear of death. So this first manifests itself, this fear of death, um, even before the, the funeral scene, it manifests itself at the pet cemetery when Rachel... Um, uh, doesn't go after Judd, but she she definitely lets it known her feelings on on being there and discussing death around the children. But it's important 
it's important that that happens because that's the conflict when it comes to Rachel. Um, there's the fear of death on one side and the understanding of it as embodied by Judd, in this case, on the other. And then we get Ellie. Okay. Um, look, nothing nothing against the actress. She's a, just a kid, but... But Jesus, uh, the acting is not good. It's just, it's not, it's not good acting. Uh, and it's, it's hard. It's hard to sit through as she, she makes her, um, I, I can't, I can't call it acting. Or she just, what, what she does, it's, it's, it, it's just, for me, it's a little hard to, to watch. At breakfast with Ellie dressed like Edna Mode from The Incredibles, we realize that there's some underlying tension between her parents, which comes out when Rachel forces Lewis to make a promise that he has no control over. Then we cut to Lewis's first day of school with an immediate cut to Victor Pascal, who pops back alive when he gets his chance alone with Lewis to deliver one of the movie's catchphrases, which I guess might work in the book, but it, um, it just seems so forced in the movie, and that's the, 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 the soil of a man's heart is stonier. Um... It just it's just it, it's forced. I mean, to me, everything about his death is forced, from the overacting of Victor to the distorted voice that they use for him. Um, and then when he shows up in the next scene in the bedroom, he appears way, way less otherworldly and more just kind of just he's like a ghost, right? You know, I mean, he not only is he a like acting like a ghost rather than like a force honestly he he just appears to be doing an impersonation of jack from an american werewolf in london right just an animated mutilated corpse acting um more appropriately if he was going out for a night on the town and back in the grave you know so with that said it's it's still a it's still a creepy scene you know um i i think that that's an effective scene while they're still in the house because i i i think it's the the deep silence in between victor's dialogue you know, he'll say something and then nothing is said. And it's just the the emptiness just fills up the spaces. You know, it, it's just, it's very effective. As the, the mist fills in the space between the stones lining the path itself as they walk, you know, at night. And there's just something about mist in horror movies. They just go together like milk and cookies. And I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll never get enough mist in my horror movies. And it is on display here in Pet Cemetery. There isn't a scene of the path at night where it isn't just just drenched in mist um and 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 the, the pet cemetery itself at night is just completely carpeted with mist it, it's maybe it's a cliche i don't know but i'm i'm very very pleased with the the set dressing in this movie it really creates for an effective setting now i haven't mentioned it yet we're almost about 15 minutes into the uh the review so far but um I, I guess we gotta talk about Dale Midkiff a little bit. He, uh, the guy, he just doesn't emote. You know, every single line is spoken with the same monotone delivery. You know, and I guess it does. It doesn't help that he he shares most of his screen time with Fred Gwynn, who plays the role so over the top. I'm never sure if he thinks that he's in a comedy or a horror movie. You know, regardless of what, whatever you think of Gwynn's performance, um, whether you think it's just too much or just right, it's it's memorable. Right, I, I think that we can all agree on that, and I think that his performance gives the movie all of its charm. Whereas Midkiff, um, I, I really don't know what he contributes. Last week, I I, I made the, the statement that Lewis um, wasn't much of a character, the, the book Lewis. Now, in hindsight, I don't know if that was very fair to the character that Stephen King wrote. 
I think that the repeated viewings of the movie over the years shaped my perception of the book, which is to say my, my memory of Dale Midkiff's performance. Except, except, seriously, big except here. Um, his acting with the kids is incredible. Um, maybe, maybe he just couldn't pull off some of the more ham-fisted bits of dialogue that was required in his scenes with Fred Gwynn. But I think that his scenes with the kids are genuine with emotion. You know, I feel in those moments everything I need to feel in order for the movie to work. You know, the overpowering love of a father towards his children. He, you know, from the way he just smiles at them, um, or the way he says, uh-oh, you know, with Gage when, he, when he's playing. It's, it, there's a... There's, there's a genuineness to it uh, that, I, that I think really, really works in the movie's favor. Um, soon after, we get uh, Cat Scare number two, except this time it's Zombie Church, who has just been reanimated from the Micmac Burial Ground. Now, Resurrected Church is not as slow going as he was in the book. Now, in the book, the Resurrected Dead were, were less. Okay, there was something really wrong about them. Now, one of the things that they can do in the book is really demonstrate a sense of smell within the characters. You can't do that in, in a movie, not unless you have uh, smell-o-vision in your home entertainment system. So you can't really get the sense of decay that's there. I mean, you can have people say yuck um, and, and, and kind of be disgusted at, but it, 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 the overpowering stench is not something that can necessarily be conveyed in the movie. Um, but here, you know, we have a church that is slightly evil. He's aggressive with bright yellow eyes, and when he scratches Lewis when he first comes back, we, we get the sense of danger that, and immediately we equate that the, the, the Micmac burial ground equals danger. You know, later we're going to see Church's disturbing new nature as he drops a dead rat into Lewis's bathtub. Now, the vulnerability in this scene is what makes it work. You know, the, the point is here, the, the, the resurrected are more dangerous and more outwardly awful than they are in the book. Judd tells the tale of Timmy Baderman, and like Church, the representation of Timmy Baderman is much, much more deranged. You know, this ghoul is less possessed, as he is in the book, and just more insane and clearly, clearly dead. Our first shot of Timmy is him holding a body part and gouging his face. He then approaches a local woman, who is now the second woman we see hanging laundry, by the way, and with what we've seen of Missy carting off the laundry, Pet Cemetery has a strong opinion of what women are good for. This propels Lewis to, uh, you know, to, to get the 411 from Judd, who narrates a, oh, god-awful flashback with lines like, Judd, come and get your dog. He stinks of the ground you buried him in. And the actor playing young Judd could just as easily win a Halloween award for his simple Jack costume. If you have not seen Tropic Thunder, please go out and watch it right now and then go back to Pet Cemetery and watch the flashback of Young Judd and tell me that that is not Simple Jack. Okay, so it's around this time, um, or it's, it's actually before uh, that we first see Zelda, and we need to talk about Zelda a little bit. Because uh, it wouldn't be a Pet Cemetery movie review if we didn't talk about Zelda. Now, for those of you who don't know, if you haven't read the book or seen the movie and you're just listening to the podcast, I would strongly recommend that you 
either read the book and then watch the movie or at least just watch the movie but Zelda is Rachel's dead sister and so we get flashbacks to when Rachel was a child having to care for her sister who was suffering from spinal spinal meningitis I remember the Zelda scenes to be terrifying the image of Zelda horrified me as a kid and I remember not having an issue with it uh you know, during subsequent rewatches. But this time, I just, I could not handle the Zelda flashback. And it's not so much the flashback or the actor playing Zelda. It was just, again, with Judd's flashback to when Timmy Baderman died, here we have the the flashback um, to Rachel's youth, and both include this this voiceover narration. Um, And I don't know if it's the delivery... Or, or if it's the dialogue written for Denise Crosby, but it is pretty tough to watch, and for all of the wrong reasons. Um, but one thing that never caught my eye, that I don't understand how I saw this movie as many times as I did, and never catch this, and never heard it talked about, or maybe I just never paid attention to it being talked about, but that is the... Um, it, to me, it's the scariest thing in the movie. I... Uh, it's not the Zelda makeup or anything having to do with the Pad Cemetery. It's it's this painting on the wall during the the flashback. Um, I, did anybody else like? Am I? I don't know. I mean, I, it's not as if it's some subtle thing. It is presented a couple times in the movie, and at the end of the movie, Gage is dressed up like the person in the painting, and I, it's just an old woman in a dress wearing a top hat, and it. It is terrifying. I guess it's supposed to be Zelda. Um, I didn't get that from the the painting itself, but just the the, the how out of place and just it, I don't know. It just who would put that on their wall? You know, and what does that say about a person? You know, it's questions like that 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 wind up disturbing me. So whoever, whosever decision it was to include that picture, bravo, good job. I think that that's great um, because that more than anything else is what I took away from this movie during this this watch um yeah that that one really oof, really got to me you know after the zelda scene uh is when it happens um after the, the zelda flashback scene and it is the scene that i'm talking about is probably the hardest scene to, to watch from any king movie or and that goes up there with with just movies in general it's just it's a hard scene to watch and i'm talking about gage's death here um, the, the picnic is just so perfect. You know, Gage is just so cute. You know, how could you not fall in love every time with the kid, every time he says, uh-oh. So anyway, the, as you know, or maybe as you don't know, I don't know, but the the, um, the kite goes sailing off and Gage goes chasing after the kite and, you know, Lewis gives a valiant effort. He gives everything to save his son. And I got to say that Lewis's chase after Gage um, you know, even though it's hard to watch, Dale Midkiff, he really gives Tom Cruise a run for his money when it comes to sprint acting. And I, I'm not joking. I, you know, Tom Cruise is known for his acting ability while running and how convincing his running is and how he gives everything to it. But the look on Dale Midkiff's face as he's running after Gage, like, you, you feel it. You get the emotion that he has to get to Gage the, the look of terror and desperation uh, in his body as he's running is, is very, very palpable. 
Now, there are so many different ways that Lambert could have shot this scene when Gage dies. You know, I mean, the, the worst possibility is that we get some explicit, gruesome scene showing Gage get hit by the car. You know, but thankfully we don't get that. You know, instead, we get a very inventive and very powerful shock-induced montage of Polaroids flashing uh, against the horrific moment of Lewis just screaming no into the air. And I just gotta say that when I think of Pet Cemetery, that is the first thing that I think of. I think of um, just the the flashes of the vacations and Young Gage and just Lewis screaming. It's so much more powerful than showing the the gruesome graphic results of the accident, which maybe you know a, a lesser director might have chosen to focus on. We see the tiny shoe and the massive rig overturned, and it's enough to tell us what happened. We don't need to see. Um, anything graphic here well, let's they know enough Stephen King um, writing the screenplay and Miranda Lambert directing it know that our imaginations are enough and not even our imaginations it's we don't want to imagine it we know what happened and having spent time with Gage as it is um, it's enough it's enough it's it's pretty brutal um, but I, I with that said I just I have to say that something struck me in the next scene which just felt off to me now, it, the next scene takes place that same night, immediately after the accident, and if it wasn't for Lewis wearing the exact same bloodstained shirt, I, I might think that it's at least a day or two later, but it's that night, and it just doesn't feel authentic to me. I mean, you could say that Lewis is in shock, and maybe he is, maybe he is, but he's so devoid of emotion that to me, it's hard to imagine that the accident had occurred on that day. Now, at the funeral, while Rachel's father is berating him, Lewis just stands there crying. And that works, okay? That I buy, because there's something so awful in that moment, you know, and that scene, it just happens so quickly, and it's almost like a like a dream scene, it, because it's just the funeral, just it's all of a sudden we're at the funeral, and I, I, I get the sense of how overwhelming the, the whole experience is. So Lewis, just to be standing there, realizing that his father-in-law, a man that he hates, is blaming him for the death of the child, and it's bringing—it's just be, even before it's a punch in the face, it's a symbolic, you know, punch in the face. It's an emotional punch in the face, and he's just crying as he stands there. That—that that to me, that I buy. But the scene at the kitchen is just missing something, and if you just gave the guy red-rimmed eyes, I'd buy it. You know, he can still look blank. But, and this sounds horrible, but I want to see the brutal grief on his face because I need, I, I just, I think that we need to understand the levels of despair that he's going through in order for him to make the decision that he's going to make. Because I think that there's nothing there. I mean, shock is one thing, but this is something else. See, by this point in the book, Lewis had taken his first full steps into the land of madness. In the book, we watch him deteriorate. You know, I mean, we're fortunate enough to share his thoughts in the book, but in the movie, we get none of this. You know, there's a, there's a little bit of King humor in there, you know, that lasts about a second, um, you know, and, and the humor comes when, when Lewis is digging up Gage and says, busting you out, son, right? Um, but I don't get the sense that he's he's venturing into insanity at all. 
I, it's just he's he's grieving, I guess, if you want to call it grief. But I just I don't like I said before, Dale Midkiff in the movie he doesn't really emote much, um, and he's required to speak a lot to the camera, which doesn't really work. Um, because it gives us his inner motivations, but it tells us his motivations. It doesn't show us his motivations. Um, you know, he speaks the things that he's thinking, but I'd rather experience what he's feeling. I, and I think, I, I guess that ultimately this is a movie that I am going to come down a little bit harder on than I wanted to because I feel as though the source material is rich because having just reread the book, I realized just what a deep and powerful examination of death that it is. Um, whereas this, this movie, I, I believe that it, it isn't ever quite sure whether it wants itself to be um, serious or B-movie kind of schlocky. And I think that this identity crisis does not work in its favor. So when he, I mean, like, clearly him at the graveyard, both in the book and the movie, it is so, so, uh, you know, EC Comics. You know, I mean, the, the moon is shining down. It's just, I mean, anytime you're at a graveyard, it, it has that quality of, a, of an EC Comics horror comic. Um, and especially in the book with just how horrific that, that scene is depicted. Um but when he does bust Gage out, you know, I think that the movie softens what's really going on there. And I don't blame them for doing that. In the book, King gets gruesome with the description of Gage. And I can't see the movie doing what King did in the book without coming across as exploitative or, you know, something out of a grindhouse movie. Because Gage is messed up. And I'm glad that we don't see that. Um... But at the same time, there are some problems with... Not, I guess the, the Gage, the only thing about the resurrection of Gage is that he has a scar across his forehead. Now, I'm not saying that I want him to look mangled, but I think that we need to see him look a little bit more inhuman than just having a scar across his forehead. But anyway, before he's resurrected, um, Lewis brings Gage to Micmac Burial Ground, just as the same time when Rachel is determined to get home. Now, what I like about this, and in the book as well, that despite her fear of death, in the face of it, she overcomes it in order to save the living. Whereas Lewis, who had seemed like the one more equipped to process it, is totally undone by it. So I like that reversal that's there. After the burial, we get cat scare number three. Just, just, just in case that we are uh, keeping score, and I am. And then Gage returns, all right? And he is the cutest little zombie monster ever depicted on screen. And I know that he's supposed to be scary, but honestly, the, he's just so damn cute. He's making these little roaring noises, you know, and then when he attacks Judd, you know, the, the scene ends with him bending down to bite Judd's neck, and it's, I guess it's supposed to be horrifying, but he just looks like he's playing. You know, it's so cute. And it's nothing against the actor, but he he just, like, what, I think that he was, uh, he was like two years, two years old at that point? I mean, he just can't help but be this adorable little toddler. He's so cute. Um, and then, so watching it, I was like, oh, I get it, I get it. 
Gage is dressed exactly like that horrifying painting. When when Rachel shows up, he's wearing the he's wearing the top hat. He's he looks like he's wearing that little blue dress. Um, never caught it. Never put the painting together with what Gage is wearing at the end. Um, so even though the painting scared me, Gage dresses the painting did not scare me. You know, I guess he's supposed to be creepy, but again, I just don't think he can help it. Just be to be cute as a button. You know, he's holding that little scalpel. And he's like just growling, you know. And and when Lewis confronts Gage in Judd's house, um, the the house for no reason is depicted it, it being covered in slime and mold. And to me, this is an example of 1980s excess. You know, it turns out to be um, Lewis's imagination, but to me, it's rather unnecessary. Also unnecessary, but totally awesome, is Gage's Superfly Jimmy Snooker impersonation from The Attic. It is great just watching this little dude drop like that. And it's immediately followed by a fight scene um, that has shades of a Saturday Night Live skit um, as Lewis just wrestles with a, a clearly like a, a, a dummy. And it ends, again, with, um, you know, just the kid being cute. He's jabbed in the neck with a neck full of poison. Um, and then just proceeds to just stagger around looking all, like, drunk. It's it's just super cute, you know. And even when he's dying for the second time, he's just adorable, saying no fair. And he's just giving nasty looks to his dad. And he just, hey, you know, just, it's, it's just, I know it's supposed to be scary, but it's really not. And I love watching that scene um, because it's just, it's inadvertently funny. Um and then going back to what I was talking about with EC Comics, the ending is so, so EC Comics with the, the resurrection of Rachel and how horrible she looks. It's so gross. And um, they kiss and there's like just slime and everything pouring out of her face. Um, it's just the, the ending is great and then immediate smash cut to the Ramones playing Pet Cemetery. So again, um, you know, I just don't think that the movie knows what it wants to be because the the subject matter is is pretty horrible with the death of a child and the death of a family and a descent into insanity. I mean, that's some pretty heavy themes. But uh, the, the, the movie just touches upon them, I think, on a surface level and gives us the, like, the flashy version without really mining its core. Um, or, or handling the subject matter delicately. But, um, huh, I don't know. Uh, so I guess we're, we're over half an hour now. Before I give my book versus movie comparison, I just I want to say that I like this movie. I like it. I enjoy it. This isn't the first time I've seen it. I doubt it will be the last time I see it. I'm sure that I'll catch it on television uh, next year around Halloween and... It'll be a good background movie at this point for me. With that said, I I really am a, a supporter. If anyone does want to make remake this movie, I don't remember off the top of my head wh who was attached. Um, if someone was announced, I, I don't quite remember. But um, huh. But I'm 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 curious. I'm curious to see, like I said, what they could do if they would make any changes, if they would keep it the same. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely interested in that. You know, it has the brand recognition. I think that would make some money. I think that it would be a just a, a good 
uh, revisitation to a familiar Stephen King work filtered through a 2014 lens, I think that it would be effective. Okay. So, book versus movie. Gage. Book versus movie. Who is better? Um, I'm going to go with movie Gage because this kid is just so damn cute. The thing is with, with book Gage, when Gage is resurrected, he's a possessed monster. You know, he is possessed by the force in the Micmac burial ground, whether it's the Wendigo or, or something else. Like, he, he speaks... Um, and, and he tells us basically that he is he is possessed by an intelligence greater than the, the two-year-old toddler that he was. That this is not just reanimated um, flesh. That it, it's something else inhabiting the body. So it's it makes for a very different type of resurrection. Whereas this just seems like a an evil version of Gage in the movie. Uh, but I'm glad that that the actor did not have to attempt the dialogue that would have come out of the novel's version of Gage or if they, I'm glad that they chose not to uh, have a voice actor speak the, the, the lines of dialogue that came out of the novel Gage's mouth I'm, gl I'm glad that they just stuck with what they did because I think that it works for the, the movie and I just, I think that this kid make these Gage memorable because of just how damn cute he is um, Ellie book versus movie book because at least in the book I can picture the kid actually saying these things whereas I don't buy a single thing that movie Ellie is trying to sell me Rachel Rachel I'm gonna go with um, I don't know I, I guess I'm gonna give it a tie because I think that Denise Crosby does a good job with the role um and I, I, I the, the movie Rachel doesn't have the amount of scenes that book Rachel does or not as much time is spent with her fear of death. You know, we get the Zelda explanation. But, uh, but I, I think that both representations are very similar. I'm going to go with both. Um, Zelda... I'm going to go with the movie because the movie version of Zelda is iconic and horrifying. And just the way he kind of scuttles around and, and cackles like a witch is, is very, very effective. So I don't know if I had seen the movie before reading the book. I'm not sure. I don't remember. So I don't remember ever having an image of Zelda other than the movie. But that's the image that sticks with me, even rereading it now this was the image, the movie image was the image that I conjured of Zelda. Now we have Judd. I'm going to go with the book. Fred Gwynn is memorable, certainly, but I believe that the book version of Judd is... Like I said, he's less animated, less wild-eyed. Fred Gwynn's good, but I happen to prefer the the more subtle version of Judd that appears in the book. Which brings us to Lewis. And I'm going to go... I mean, it's not even, it's not even close. Uh, but it's the book. Because I need to redeem what I said about Lewis from last week. Um, I take it back. He is a much stronger character 
in the book. He's a man of his convictions. He's a man of order. He uh, he doesn't have the greatest, uh, flashiest personality, but he at least emotes. And Dale Midkiff just doesn't emote. The, the emotion level is the same throughout the course of the entire movie, pretty much, except when he's acting with the kids. So, I don't know. I uh, Dale Midkiff is... Sur- Dale Midkiff is serviceable and he does a good job but it's not great and I think that if another actor had been in that role oh what that other actor could have done with the just varying emotions that he could have shown throughout the entire movie at the different stages of life that he's living when he first arrives you know when he first arrives at the house with his family and everything's perfect you know we could see him calm under pressure when Pascal dies to the disbelief of Pascal's return to the not knowing how to handle the fact that the cat is back from the dead to the initial shock of his son being um, dead to the slow justification of what he's about to do like there's a lot that could be done and I would like to see the different flavors that an actor could bring to a role. But I don't think that Dale Midkiff did it. I think that he kind of gave us the same line delivery the entire way through. So ultimately, I'm going to go with the book. Um, if you read, you know, if you listened to my review last week, you, you know that I was very, very, um, I was very impressed with what Stephen King was doing. And I still am very, very impressed. Um, and like I said, I think this it's, an, it's a watchable movie. I think it's effective at times, but I think that it's lacking a certain seriousness, not seriousness, but a, a depth to it that I, I think is there that could have been explored a little bit more. So I'm all for a remake, um, but it is a movie worth checking out, and I'm sure that anyone listening to this has definitely seen it time and time again. So that's all I got for this week, guys. And next week, make sure that you uh, head on back as I review the cycle of the werewolf. So if you have any thoughts on Pet Cemetery, the book or the movie, or anything else, um, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can follow along at Twitter or Instagram, Tumblr. Um, you can like us, us. I always say us. Um, I mean, unless you're counting my dogs, uh, there's really no us in this equation. So you can follow me um, on Facebook, or if you have time, you can head on over to iTunes and write a review. Um, and if not, just keep on listening. Um, I'm happy to have you. So I will see you here next week for the Cycle of the Werewolf review. Same King Time, same King Channel, Stephen Kingcast. Cast.